Welcome to the Highly Objective Podcast, where we talk to cannabis industry executives and investors and go into the weeds on recent news. Today we have Gary Santo, CEO of Telt Holdings. Um, Gary, good to have you on. Uh, would love to kind of get an overview of the company and yourself. Sure, and thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, Tilt, Tilt is a bit of a different story uh, when it comes to multi-state operators. Uh, half of our operations do touch the plant. We have operations in Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and we're building out in New York. And they're your traditional MSO style. In Massachusetts, we're fully vertical, so we have cultivation and manufacturing and three retail stores. In Pennsylvania, it's manufacturing and cultivation, so it's 100% wholesale. And then in Ohio, uh, it's just manufacturing. So again, 100% wholesale, New York's under construction. But then the other half of our business doesn't really touch the plant whatsoever, and that's Jupiter Research. So Jupiter is one of the distributors for the C-Cell brand of vape hardware. So that's the ceramic core with sort of a cotton wick wrapped around it. And Jupiter was instrumental in bringing that technology into the marketplace. That's a technology that's owned by a company out in China by the name of S'more. It was predominantly used in the nicotine space. But our chair of our board, who at the time was the CEO of Jupiter, uh, he saw an opportunity to bring that into the more viscous cannabis world and spent a few years working with them in the lab trying to figure out how to do that. So as a result, that part of the business not only distributes a very successful line, uh, it's the top, one of the top vape lines out there, but also has a complete R&D lab and is responsible for about 700 relationships that we have with Canadian LPs, US MSOs, and independent brands. And it's been a B2B play that almost serves as the basis for our differentiated strategy uh, as a company going forward. So like I said, about half of our revenue comes, a little more than half of our revenue comes from that part of the organization. The rest comes from plant touching and certainly plant touching is starting to ramp as you might imagine. So a bit of a different story, different play, more diversified, but it allows us multiple touch points. Uh, and to put that in perspective, Probably about 43% of our revenue comes from people who are customers of both our plant touching and non-plant touching businesses. So they purchase the hardware from us, the packaging from us, and then it comes over into the markets where we have plant touching operations, where we fill it, cap it, and then help sell and distribute it. So it's, it's a nice ecosystem that we offer uh, our partners. Yeah, and since you know, you're, you're competing with some of your plant touching partners, and, and they're also a customer of Jupiter Research, um, do you have most or all the MSOs ask customers today? Pretty much. I mean, I think what's important is we try not to compete. So you think about our footprint. We're not the type of MSO that talks about retail sales and how many sales per square foot and how many stores do we have. We, we sort of came along as a wholesale provider by, by, by happenstance for all intents and purposes. There was some slowness to getting all of our licenses activated in Massachusetts. So up until the middle of last year, we had our cultivation and manufacturing facility, 100,000 square feet. Uh, and then we had one store open on medical only. So instead of most MSOs who tend to try to push as much through their retail channel, we were pushing everything through our wholesale channel. And it was a good time to be a wholesaler. Frankly, about a year, year and a half ago, I could put a, a pound, of, uh, pound of flour into a bag and sell it for almost $4,000. Now that's come down, as you might imagine. I don't think we ever get to California levels here on the East Coast. I think the outdoor grow is just not readily available to us. That said, it's down significantly. So we made a pivot to not compete with the MSOs in the start of January of last year, but instead be a supplier, um, to be competing for that 30% of the shelf space that just about every MSO dedicates to third-party products. And to this point, they've had to sort of cultivate what that third-party product, you know, what that curated portfolio looks like. 
our job is to sort of roll in with like the Frito-Lay truck and say, I've got something for you at every stop. Not brands that are ours necessarily. We're partnering with brands. These are independent brands who want to come from the West Coast to the East Coast and who are trying to create that Coke or that Pepsi, that national brand that some have tried but have struggled with. And, you know, I think by doing that, it's allowed us to be a true supplier and partner to our MSOs and the Canadian LPs and not be competing with them. Because, yes, in Massachusetts, we have our three stores because you have to. But frankly, we're the inverse. In our stores, about 70% of our shelf space will go to third-party product, and only 30% will go to any of our house-branded products. Yeah, and I think that partnership approach is a pretty differentiated one. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's you guys in, in a set that probably have the most uh, partnerships with third-party brands. Um, so, you know, tell me more about when you sort of shifted towards that strategy and, and sort of how you've chosen your partners. You have some very interesting one. Um, you know, I heard the, the panel you did at Benzinga two months ago, and, and you are, you know, a great partner to Old Pal. And, and I heard Rusty say that you basically don't prioritize your own brands over their brand, which, which makes you a great partner in those markets. Um, and obviously recently with Heisman. So you have some very interesting partners. So we'd love to hear more about that strategy and evolution. Yeah, so as I mentioned, Jupiter always had this B2B plan of selling the hardware to the brands, the MSOs, and the LPs. For us, while it's a profitable business, because we don't own the full vertical, we don't own the manufacturing on the hardware side, that's still done in China by a third party, the margins don't look quite as sexy, right? You're talking low to mid-20s on the gross margins, which results in about low to mid-teens on the EBITDA margins. Efficient, but again, not sexy. Um, so we turned to the plant touching and said, what if we took that approach, but we own the vertical? So we have the cultivation and the manufacturing and we can do the distribution. And that's sort of how we started to create this business model. Probably around middle to end of 2020, the vision started to come together. So by January of last year, we announced that we were going to lean into wholesale, which uh, I think when people thought about that, they said, wait, that's declining. The margins are going to be compressed. You're living in rented space. And we actually agree with that we felt that the brands were where the wholesale world was going to go to. So that CPG play. Um, so the question was, do you build your own brand? And certainly a number of MSOs have tried that. But if you take Trulieve as an example, Trulieve building its own brand in Florida where it has over a hundred stores makes all the sense in the world. Trying to build that same brand in Massachusetts where you only get three stores is a lot more of a difficult task. And when you are competing with the guy down the street who's trying to build his own brand in his three stores, you can see where it becomes a very expensive problem to try to solve. So for us, we felt don't really have the time or the resources to build a brand, don't really know what that brand needs to look like just yet. Um, what if we start looking at these California brands, the Colorado brands, the Washington State brands that have been incredibly successful in these hyper competitive race to the bottom type markets? They've managed to hold their position, hold their prices, and really carve out a niche for themselves. Could be lifestyle like Rusty's brand and Old Pal or like a Heisman. It could be something you know very niche like a, uh, Her Highness, which is that female cannabis couture, very high end, very premium. And it could be anything in between. You know, certainly we work with 1906. You know, they have a very specified form factor that they like to use. So we look for people that are complementary to one another. And that's what we started to go down the path. Now it is a differentiated strategy in that typically when a brand wants to work with an MSO, a few different things can happen. Either you could lose your brand identity where they're just licensing the name and that's it. And we've seen that happen and the quality can differ. The form factors don't look quite the same. It's not the same experience. Or you have to then contend with who's getting what shelf space, who's getting allocated biomass, who's getting allocated the workforce. So it's end of the month, end of the quarter. You're an MSO, you're trying to make your numbers. Your products always carry a higher margin than any third-party product that you partner with. 
where you're going to allocate your resources. I think for us, what our challenge to the brands are, look, we'll give you a turnkey operation. You come to us, we'll take care of the regulatory, the manufacturing, the distribution, the sales, the packaging. You just put some brand ambassadors in place. You do those pop-ups, you do the product, work with us on product development to keep your brand fidelity tight and your brand in demand, commanding some type of a price point that we could not get otherwise with our own product. And then it all starts to make sense. We will allocate the resources to whatever brands are doing well. If you do your job right, we'll be allocating the resources to you. If another brand does their job better, we'll allocate some resources to them and kind of work down the path from there. Our brand is really going to be out there and it's Standard Farms. We'll be out there as sort of a filler brand. If there's a form factor that's missing, if there's a price point that's not being addressed, Standard Farms will plug in and maybe every now and then we might do some super high-end boutique strain because you know, we have an unbelievable growing staff uh, that we brought on board in September of this past year. And there are going to be some moments where I think we'll want to put our imprint on what some of those genetics look like. And do you also think about you know, gross margins with how much Standard Farms will be as a percentage of that shelf space? And you mentioned it's the reverse in Massachusetts where it's 30%, but I imagine in, in Pennsylvania, for example, it's probably a higher percentage. Um, is that the case? I think in Ohio or Pennsylvania, it's been a larger percentage uh, only because the brands are still getting in there. And I think you're limited by the form factors because those are both two medical markets and they're not without their challenges to get products approved. I mean, we certainly saw in Pennsylvania where a number of previously approved products in the vape space were suddenly recalled because they weren't using cannabis derived terpenes. Now, we're fortunate that our Standard Farms brand has always only used cannabis derived terpenes. So none of our products were affected. And it turned out to be actually a bit of a windfall for us uh, in the first quarter and that a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the MSOs were wanting to buy our cartridges or buy our raw terpenes and be able to put them into product. Um, but as we've started to launch Old Pal and other products in that, in, in that particular market, Arrow, we've seen that it's a skew-starved market. It's challenging to get the products through and we've had to actually take someone from our regulatory team and put them in our corporate development team to help navigate those waters. But we're getting products approved. And each one we roll out takes off like a rocket ship. Definitely, that's going to be the case in Ohio. Uh, they are definitely uh, starved for SKUs there. And we just finished production runs with 1906. We're doing packaging right now. And those should be hitting the shelves in the next few weeks. And Timeless, I think, is down there. They're another one of our partners. They just finished their production runs. And I believe they're going to be launching in the next few weeks as well. Is this a, the same Timeless that's based out of uh, Arizona? one and the same uh, right in our backyard because our Jupiter research uh, facility is based in Arizona as well. So it's always nice to connect with the, you know, those entities that we're near and dear with. Yeah. And, and that, and that's a, you know, brand that's pretty dominant in Arizona. So it makes a lot of sense to bring them to the markets that, that you're in and as part of that wholesale strategy. And, and plus they're one of, they're mm -hmm. one of Jupiter's biggest customers. So it's a great example of the cross sell. Um, you know, they, they buy the hardware from us. They've been buying the hardware from us, even in the markets that we don't have cannabis operations. And now they're going to buy that hardware and bring it into our markets as well. And what's nice there is by having then that whole continuum, we can be competitive pricing on the all-in basis. So maybe I can't do as much for you on the hardware as you'd like me to, but if you're bringing it into a market where I have plant touching operations, maybe I can do something for you there where I control more of the vertical. So net net to that brand, it makes sense on the bigger relationship basis. And, and I want to talk about what, what are the four markets you're in, uh, New York. So you've also taken that similar partner approach versus going in and doing it alone. Uh, tell me more about how that partnership with the Chinooka came about and, and why you pursued that route. 
Yes, that one was pretty exciting because we were looking for ways to get into New York. And, and the one overture we've heard from our brand partners, we certainly heard this at Benzing, and then I was recently at the C-Lab conference in Miami this past week. They want us in more markets. You know, we've been told that if you just get into these markets, we want to work with you, even if they're already in market with someone else because of that differentiated experience. So when we were looking at New York, the question is, it's really expensive. I think at the time that MedMen deal had just been announced, where it's like 75 million just for the right to get in there and then probably have to spend more money updating facilities and everything else. Which so looks cheap, cheap now after the, uh, the other yeah. deal. It's, it's yeah. cheaper now, but I just think you think about that capital just for the right to play. So yeah. we were introduced to Shinnecock. I grew up on Long Island. I'm very familiar uh, with, with the tribe. And I did not realize that they were looking to get into the cannabis space. And they had been working on it since really 2015. And what impressed us about it was how thoughtful they had been really in trying to develop a cannabis program that could work very contemporaneously with what was going on in New York State. They didn't have to. I mean, it's their sovereign ground. They could set the rules and they could pretty much do what they wanted to do. But they chose to try to mimic it because they saw the bigger play, not only to sell cannabis on the sovereign land itself, and certainly right there on Montauk Highway out in Southampton, but also be able to wholesale throughout the rest of the state. And the only way you do that is if your products and your testing regime and your regulations really work hand in glove with what New York State is doing. So we appreciated the thoughtful approach. They were looking for someone who had operational experience and had some access to capital, which we did, and a partnership was born. Uh, what I think is very unique, though, is typically when you see an MSO step in for something like this, and this happens certainly in Ohio and some other states where the MSO might be building something out and they're funding it and they're providing management services. Ultimately, there's some hidden cost, a, a hidden uh, call option that allows them to take ownership of the facility somewhere down the road, 12 months, one, two years, whatever it is. In this particular case, that's not going to happen. This is going to be owned by the Shinnecock outright on day one. We will provide our services through a management contract. Right now, it currently runs out nine years with two five-year extensions. Um, but we will control the build of it. Uh, we will work with them, obviously, because we want to be sensitive to the cultural aspects of building on sovereign land. But we'll also uh, make best efforts to employ natives uh, of that land in our dispensaries, in that facility, uh, and really try to teach them how to take a love for the plant, because there's a lot of folks really on that sovereign land that have an understanding and deep respect for plant-based medicine, how to turn that into a business that could help sustain an economy on their sovereign ground. That's the biggest thing missing from a lot of these uh, you know, sovereign, sovereign nations. So it's exciting us to do it from that perspective. Um, you know, the, we're providing the loan, we're providing the oversight. We hope to get the dispensary open before the end of the year. We'll be breaking ground uh, not long after July 4th, I think, which is a great time to try to find a place to stay when you're out in Southampton. So yeah, that's gonna be a challenge. Um, but, and then we hope to get cultivation and manufacturing up and running. And in the interim, we've been working closely with the state and other M M MSOs to try to come up with a memorandum of understanding so that if we do get that dispensary built before cultivation is ready, we can at least wholesale in product and resell it. Right now, there's nothing explicitly prohibiting you from doing that if you're a New York state operator, but you technically are crossing a sovereign state line. So we wouldn't want any MSO we might partner with there to suddenly put their license at risk, especially with everything coming down the pike, you know, in New York state. So we would like something a little bit more explicit and we're working with the state to try to put something together. Yeah, and from an economics perspective um, for that management service agreement, is it a, a percent of revenue um, or is it a monthly fee, annual fee? Yeah, so it breaks down to three components. We get, I think it's 11 and a quarter percent of all top line revenue. 
then our loan is getting paid back out of cash flow from operations. And we, we basically are lending them up to $18 million at a 9% interest rate. And then uh, in terms of the gross profit after that, we get 18 and three quarters percent. So there's sort of three pieces that we get. What's nice there though, is because that's coming in as fee income for us, we won't be consolidating this entity onto our balance sheet. So there's no cogs or anything. It's going to come in top line. It's going to flow straight down through the bottom line. So it's going to improve our overall margin profile at the same time. Great. And, and yeah, I just want to touch on, I really agree with you that that is a, a true partnership um, versus sort of a partner to potentially own down the road. So very differentiated from what you're doing versus some of the other MSOs. Yeah, we were lucky to have a board willing to do this because, I mean, you are putting some capital at risk. You know, lending to sovereign nation on sovereign ground is not without risk um, because you don't have some of the same recourse that you might have lending to somebody in any other state. But the reality is, you know, I think from our perspective, when we try to do these, these sorts of arrangements, we want to make sure that we're providing value. Uh, if we're going to lean into social equity, there's only one way to lean in, and that's all the way. And I think trying to come up with ways to, to mask what is really just, hey, I, I want to take advantage of the situation just to get into New York. That's not how we structure this. That's not how we intend to structure it. Our partnerships, whether it's with the sovereign nation, whether it's with our brands, both sides are incentivized to do well. And if both sides do well, you know, then basically we've achieved what we're hoping for. And, and going to that sort of, you know, credit side of things. Um, recently, last month, you did a deal with IPR for $40 million, um, across PA and Massachusetts. I think that's supposed to reduce your debt load by 50%. Um, going, you know, so I think that's about what, like 40, 45 billion in, in debt right now? Uh, so we, right now, uh, the total amount before we did the deal was about say 75 million. Um, mm -hmm. So we're raising right now, it's about 55. Uh, the second piece should close by the end of this month. Uh, that'll net us about 42 million, give or take, because there we had to finish purchasing the Massachusetts property. So we owned it for a split second. And now IIPR owns it. Um, so about 42 million will go towards that. Um, half of that 75 was coming due this November. So that'll be taken yep. care of. Uh, and then the rest will go over. Now, what we've had in the interim is the combination of those two debt instruments that we currently have are a combination of friends and family and people who are equity holders of the I company. I figured since it's, it's at 8%, I was going to say that's really cheap relative to you know, what yeah. the larger MSOs have interest rates at. Yeah, so half, half of the debt is held by Jupiter Sellers. So when Jupiter was purchased by Tilt, it was for a combination of cash, equity, and then a seller's note. So that's one piece. Then the other piece are folks who also have warrants or already had equity interest. So there's been sort of a renewed spirit with the business model, seeing how things are starting to take off. Um, we've had a number of those investors come to us and say, hey, we'd like to stay in, whether it's a new note altogether, or we just amend and extend an existing note. So we're working right now with those parties to figure out, okay, how much how much really wants to roll? Do we end up just taking every dollar we raise and paying down debt? Is there an opportunity to keep a little cash on the balance sheet? So it's kind of a fun time while the rest of the market is contracting. We're having sort of vibrant market conversations with our existing investor base. And then also looking at you know, the funds that are coming in from IIPR. So I'd say before the end of the summer, we'll have our capital structure finalized one way or another. Um, and we'll exit the summer really with a nice good two, three year, uh, three year out sort of debt instrument. Yeah, it, it seems like that that other junior debt is um, due in, in April 2023. It sounds yeah. like there's some potential to extend that given yep. friendlies. Yeah, I mean, obviously there'd be some amend and extend. Uh, I don't expect us to keep 8% forever. I think that was incredibly generous at the time and the company desperately needed it. But I also don't want to have, again, I'm very big on trying to do deals that make sense for both parties. 
And you know, when you're getting 8% debt in a market like this, if you can do it, great. If you're doing it to friends and family, I'd want to think about that. You know, so you know, you want it to be market-based or inside a market, but you don't have to be egregious about it either. Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. And, and I think, you know, just going back to you know, your revenue growth from when sort of this transition happened, um, you know, it's been looking pretty good. I mean, 158 million revenue in 2020, then 203 million in 2021. And then this year, you've already given an outlook of 255 to 265 million. So it's been very nice growth. And, and along with that, uh, some nice EBITDA margins as well. What I love is we haven't had to go out and acquire anything or buy that. It's truly been organic growth. Um, and for us, when you look at kind of the second half jump we're anticipating, people are always asking, like, what do you think is going to happen in the second half? And all the MSOs are talking about this great second half. So obviously, everyone's hoping for some macro tailwinds. But in our case, I'm looking at the fact that we've got about 30 new genetics that are going to be popping in the next, I'd say, 30 to 45 days. In our Pennsylvania operation, we went from growing about seven grams per square foot on a dry rate equivalent, which I didn't think you could do and actually say you had a garden. But we're doing going from that to about 50 grams per square foot. Uh, I think earlier this week, uh, our, our production staff just let us know that we finally broke over the 50. So without adding anything, without having to increase the number of people we have working for us or, or add new you know, space, we're now getting seven times the production out of an existing facility. So it's truly organic growth. Now, there's a limit to that. At some point, we need to start expanding. And New York is going to be one of those first options that you'll see us do. Um, and then the other piece is our brand partnerships. We're going to be activating roughly about 100 new SKUs between now and the end of the year. So there's plenty more that Old Pal wants to do with us. And we're working with product development. Uh, we recently rolled out their brownie, uh, which was something that we created in our kitchen together as a collaborative effort. Uh, I know Her Highness wants to expand their SKU set. Timeless is going to be coming to market. Toast is going to be coming to market. Heisman's excited for the football season. So we're gearing up some genetics to have ready for that. So we have a fair amount of SKUs that will be hitting. So when I think about what's going to make our second half into 2023 special, a lot of that is within our control. And if we get a positive tailwind on top of that, then we're happy to be in position A to take advantage. Yeah, and on that point, you know, you mentioned earlier, your, your brand partners are requesting you guys be in more markets. So what's that outlook on that fifth? an additional market for, for right now? It's really changed our view. I mean, I was focusing on this kind of Northeast corridor where you start to add pieces around because you think about Ohio, Pennsylvania, New York, and Massachusetts, you have a little nexus there. And in the event legalization were to occur, I love having my assets all within a few hundred miles because then I could sit there and be very tactical. I've got one centralized grow team, one centralized production team, and one head of all plant touching operations. And they can basically get to all those facilities in the span of a week, they could be at every single one of them without having to take long flights and everything. And I like that. It's allowing us to standardize what we do. And should the time come when we can cross state borders, I can use my high-end grow in Massachusetts for the boutique flower. I can use my translucent roof grow in Pennsylvania for biomass. I can be very tactical. That said, with these brands now coming to us, states like Florida, Illinois, Michigan, Missouri start to look interesting because if I know I either have an embedded brand that's ready to come work with me or a brand that wants to get in there and is going to devote their marketing resources to really launching, suddenly now I have a better ramp than if I were trying to come in with just a standard farms product and grow it organically. So I think it gives us sort of a second viewpoint on that. And it's exciting. It's a time right now where there's a lot of different assets coming online for a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of creativity going into these deals. It's not just about like in 2017, 2018, when who could write the biggest check, uh, you know, and then try to earn out. Uh, I think there's some opportunities there for us to be really, uh, really tactical about which states we decide to go into. 
So, so I got asked then, um, have, have you considered Michigan and Virginia and New Jersey, Connecticut, you know, all the states that are bordering states you're currently in? Yeah, definitely. And look, I think partnerships could be something interesting too. So if you have somebody who's looking for someone with operational expertise, you know, I think our operating margins are some of the best in the business. So, you know, we, we can come in and either clean up an existing operation or help you scale an existing operation. As we think about, for example, in New York state, some of the hemp regulations coming along and as those folks seek to get scale, uh, I think those are interesting partnerships that we might be able to engage with and, and sort of help add value. So it's not just about planting our own flag. We have no trouble, as you saw with the Shinnecock, uh, you know, sharing uh, a little bit along those lines, because I think it keeps the cost manageable and it keeps everybody engaged. So, you know, I think there are creative ways to be really smart, uh, you know, with the money out there. And that's why we've been EBITDA positive, I think, for something like eight or nine quarters in a row. And, and then of those partners that aren't in your portfolio today, you know, you have the slide in your investor presentation about bringing California brands uh, to the East Coast. What what brands out there that aren't partners today would, would you like to become partners? That's a tough one. I have to be careful because my head of corp dev will come through this phone and bang me over the head if I start spouting out brand names. But, you know, I think when we started this process back last January, it was us making all the outbound calls. And certainly no one was really talking CPG. I mean, some of the MSOs were, I think, you know, Boris Jordan is one of the first ones. Um, but really, the turnaround has been when we were down in Miami at Benzinga, we had 41 meetings that we took, most of which were with brands all wanting to work with us. And for us, what we're trying to develop is sort of a grid. There's only so many form factors out there and then so many levels of quality and price points. For us, what we're trying to do is have as well-rounded a portfolio as possible. We don't want just all ultra premium high end. Because I think one of the things that a lot of companies said in the early days was they equated quality and premium together as if you could only get quality if you went to the upper left quadrant and had the most premium. You can get quality pretty much at every step of the way. And the best part is if you can get consistency. And that's something that we pride ourselves on. Consistent quality for wherever you are in that continuum. So as we look at the brands out there, we're trying to see, do they, do they complement each other? There'll always be some overlap, but we don't want everybody competing like five pre-roll guys or you know seven edible guys. So instead, looking for brands that have a definitive architecture, if there is a celebrity involved, and Heisman's a great example, is that celebrity truly engaged? Is there an origin story? Are they involved? And you can't find somebody more involved in their business day to day than Ricky Williams is. With yeah, Heisman. and I, I saw you guys did a, a panel just last week. So yeah, and he's he's a blast. I mean, I never really fully appreciated just how deep his medical knowledge goes uh, on this level. So it's it's really great to see folks who are plugged in because that means that they're always thinking, they're always adapting, they're not just riding some you know, near-term celebrity pop. Uh, and that, that's not very interesting to us. Uh, even in the near term, that's not interesting. So we look for brands like an old pal, that you get that whole lifestyle vibe. You look at a Heisman, right? And they're looking at the medicinal purposes and how you can build it into your daily life and bring it into the sports regime. I think those are the kinds of things that get exciting to us. You know, the edibles, you look at a 1906, which it's a swallowable, so I wouldn't necessarily call it an edible but they're very intentional relationships. And right now, I, I'd say we probably have about two dozen brands who are wanting to do business with us and some we're going to have to politely say no to uh, and others we're going to lean into. We typically like brands that have a little bit of a track record too. So I think Heisman is one of those few that we're probably taking a little bit of a flyer on and that you know they're not fully built out the way an old pal necessarily is, right? Right, like they um, were they're still pretty early when they launched in California. So you guys essentially are, are taking them on at a much earlier um, place in their life cycle than where old pal was when you guys did that partnership. 
And it's fun to do a few of those. We did that with Her Highness. You know, I think it makes it exciting. It keeps it vibrant. And if it's something you really believe in, I think it makes sense. Uh, in other instances, you know, something a little bit more built out. But once they come into our group, really, you know, there's so many opportunities, even to do collaboration between our brands, you know, to do some of those special runs, like those television shows you always see where they bring three different shows together into one special evening. You know, we could do something like that with some of our brands. So, you know, I, I fortunately I can't name names. I wish I could. Uh, but, you know, at this point, uh, you know, I think we tend to bring on a lot of our brands the first half of the year, and then we want to activate them and get deep with them in the second half of the year. And then the cycle begins again, you know, as we exit this year. So, uh, you know, those conversations continue, though, on a daily basis. Got it. So, so you're having conversations now towards the end of the year. You'll announce in first half of 23, and then you'll start bringing them to market, call it later in 23 for any new brands. I mean, barring, barring any special, you know, situations, right? If someone comes along, that's a brand we'd love to work with and there's an opportunity to get them signed before then, Hey, we're happy to do it. Uh, you know, I think one of the things we're seeing more and more are brands that are in our markets. And this happened with, um, you know, this happened with Arrow in Massachusetts. They were working with somebody else and they chose to switch gears and come work with us. Now we had started working with them in, in Pennsylvania and they're one of Jupiter's customers as well. So there was a history there but they switched over. And we're seeing that more and more that even existing brands and existing markets are looking for ways to expand the relationship beyond just what our initial agreement might call for. So um, yeah, I think that ability to go deep is, is equally as important to us. And I think the other leg of the stool, you know, we don't want to miss two other pieces, I guess, two other legs. One, what we do with our MSO partners, there's opportunities and even just operators, there's opportunities to do a lot of white label work. And this is especially important in a state like Massachusetts, where there are so many independent dispensaries that are not affiliated with an MSO. They might want a white label brand. And I know the labeling still has to show it came from, you know, Tilt or Commonwealth Alternative Care or Massachusetts shop. But still, it gives them an opportunity to have their own house brand. Uh, you know, it could be something we dedicate to them. It could be some blend or something unique for them. So there's opportunities to do work there. It's not quite the same as a brand partnership, but again, it's an opportunity. Um, and then on the hardware side, we're working on a couple of, uh, I think, innovations. We love disruptive technology. And we think that, you know, when you look at the vaping industry and the high viscosity uh, ones out there, it seems like that's run its course. There's still a place for it. But as we look towards the high terpene extracts, you're seeing less viscosity. You're seeing hashes and waxes and shatters and developing sort of that next generation of technology that's better suited for that because a ceramic center with a cotton wick doesn't work well with a hash. Um, you know, I think our lab is going to be putting some things out that hopefully we can start talking about towards the end of this year and the beginning of next. So there's a whole hardware piece to it, um, you know, that could also expand in the end term as well. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's half your business. So innovation on that side of the business is huge. Yep. Yep. I think, you know, we're one of the few distributors that has that full out lab. So, you know, out in Arizona, I think we have about a dozen or so folks, um, you know, headed up by Augie Fitzpatrick, uh, you know, and he really, uh, you know, has, has taken the lead on various kinds of really creative approaches, uh, you know, to how, how one can, can vape, you know, in, in a responsible way, how to, how to turn a dab rig into something that doesn't look like a science experiment, you know, things like that. So we're excited. Uh, you know, some of them have, applications some are so niche that it's like all right the six guys that would like that you know they can order them as christmas gifts we're not going to put that into mass production so you know it's, it's tempering that excitement with you know what does actually work in the market and, and tell me more about competition on that side who are you guys competing with on, on that side of the business you know it's interesting i would say if you marry up the plant touching with the innovation that we can do there's probably nobody else out there mm -hmm. but if you just want to go pure hardware to hardware obviously there are other distributors of c-cell 
So Greenland would be one of them. Three Winds is a private company. They would be another one. They're all C-cell distributors. We're still by far the largest. We have over 50% of the market share on that front. Um, you know, and I think then there's all the other vape providers out there, the AVDs of the world and so on. Uh, I think when it comes to innovation, that's going to be the one thing that changes, I think, uh, significantly. We sort of led the pack on that in the early days in 2018, 2019. Then, then when the founder of Jupiter became the CEO of Tilt and then became chair of our board, he sort of stepped out of the lab for a while and innovation mm -hmm. slowed down. But now he works with us on special projects. We brought Augie in last, last September. And now we've sort of really kickstarted that innovation side. And I think that also separates us because most of those other distributors don't have labs. They don't have the ability to customize here on shore. I, I think those are all things that we can do. Right. So it, it's that value add that Jupiter is doing that's very differentiated from the competition. Yep. And look, I think the size of our company also gives us an opportunity to manage our working capital in such a way. I mean, we're carrying close to 30, 40 million dollars of inventory, both custom and stock based inventory. So we're one of the few, if not the only distributor on the C-cell side who didn't stock out. Uh, we regularly sell to the competition's customers. We actually have actually sold to the competition every now and then when they've needed some backstock. So, you know, I think from that perspective, it's sort of a white glove of treatment. People know what they're getting. There's a QC and a QA component. We have an entire team based at the S'more factory in Shenzhen, China. So, uh, you know, we're able to see when the boats are lining up, how to get our, uh, what we can on the water and in the air as quickly as possible. So the team's done a heck of a job managing the supply chain disruption that you've seen over time. And yeah, it's cost us a few basis points in the process, but the stickiness of the customer base we have as a result is something that really separates us. And then on that business, would you ever try to develop your, your own hardware so you're not just a C-cell distributor? Yes and no. So when you say that, I first think, man, if we could build manufacturing here on shore, that would be the absolute holy grail. That takes a lot of time and effort. And, and a lot of capex. Exactly. <laughs> But I think our lab is capable. If you look at some of the new technologies that they're working on right now. So what I talked about for the high terpene extract, they're not dependent on C-cell technology. Now, it doesn't mean we might not partner with the factory anyway, um, but certainly we have relationships with a number of manufacturers that we have vetted. And there is opportunity to expand beyond just C-cell. Uh, to this point, we have been exclusively. Uh, there's nothing contractually limiting us to that. I think it's just because it's been a great product and you know, it's virtually sold itself. But I think certainly as we're bringing some of these things to market, the speed at which we can bring it to market and such, uh, there are opportunities there to do more than just C-cell technology. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, I, I've seen some of the premium brands sort of adopt new technology because similar to what you're doing, you always have to be, you know, expanding form factor. You always have to be comfortable with taking things on that are very early stages. Um, so, so it makes sense to try and do that as a company. And what's great is we can leverage our team in China uh, because not only do they oversee the QC and the QA and they take a look at all the, you know, the shipping and freight while in China, they can go to the other factories in China and help us vet them and manage them as well. Because when you think about going to new technology and you think about some of the challenges these brands and MSOs have faced, it's been about quality control, quality assurance, but then also the ability of these uh, manufacturers to scale. You know, sometimes it's a great product, it's a nice idea, and in batches of 100 or 1,000, it makes sense. The second you say, okay, I'm putting this into my cheap and cheerful line, let's make 10,000 of them, the system starts to implode upon itself. And I think that's where then Jupiter's expertise really shines. So our ability to partner with some of these manufacturers who are looking for that, how do I scale and scale in a way that, you know, I get that same kind of white glove treatment and assurance to the customers that this is something they should count on, you need an intermediary like Jupiter to step in. 
Right. And I think it makes a lot of sense. It's a one-stop shop with Tilt. If you're a brand partner who then also needs Bay Partware versus going with one of your competitors and then also partnering with, with you maybe on the plant touching side or another you know, competitor on the wholesale side. So it makes a lot of sense as that pitch. And, and I think it also allows us to go deep in the relationship because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, if I can't do something great for you on the pricing of the hardware, maybe I could do something great for you on the plant touching. The other piece I think the brands are starting to come to us is sort of taking that Jupiter expertise on how to manage working capital and manage a warehouse to make sure things come in from China on a timely basis and get to where they need to go has been on sort of packaging and swag. These brands, as they expand from California, their supply lines are not always the most efficient, right? They're, they didn't really plan for this. Uh, they were good in the one market they were in, they were fine with that, but it tends to be a little messy. So we've had some of these brands that we work with and even ones that we do not work with come to us asking if we'd be willing to help manage their supply chain, leverage our warehouse and our expertise, and in some cases, maybe even contribute some working capital to help them centralize you know, what happens with their packaging, with their swag, and help manage how it gets out to the different markets. Because the last thing you want is to enter a new market as a brand, do a first production run, it takes off like wildfire, and then you're out of packaging for the next six months. You know, you go from the, the scarcity factor, which is kind of alluring, to just absolute customer frustration. So it's another way to sort of become that much more embedded into that ecosystem for brands and MSOs. No, totally makes sense. And, and I want to touch upon, you know, the, the headquarters being Phoenix, you know, so you, you mentioned, and we talked about Irving kind of being in Northeast and, and Midwest, but your headquarters, and I thought that was just for Jupiter, but for the whole company is actually in Phoenix, Arizona. So how do you manage the workforce across uh, the U.S.? It's interesting. So the headquarters used to be in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, because the former, a lot of the former management team sat here on the East Coast. And, and that's what I went, thought. So I, I actually, um, this is new to me that HQ, yeah. Arizona. Yeah, so the chair of our board, Mark Scatterday, when he stepped in as CEO a couple of years ago, um, he's based out of obviously Arizona. Jupiter is, is, was, his, was his company. So they, they very quickly moved the headquarters out there. Uh, and then Mark hired me and decided that I would succeed him. We still have our Cambridge offices, so stay tuned. But you know, it, I don't mind, I go out on a monthly basis. In fact, I'm going out next week. Uh, I try to get to all of our sites whenever I can. I think it's important for connectivity. Our CFO sits out there with the finance organization. So, you know, it's not a production facility out there. So if you think about the kind of attention they need, they're a great, well-oiled machine out there in terms of their marketing, their production, the manage, sorry, not production, the, the lab work and, you know, their ability to manage supply chain and distribute and sell. Um, they don't require quite as much hands-on as say our plant touching operations do. So I, I have no trouble with us being split between the two coasts. You know, it's good to have sort of that, that satellite. Not great to go out there in June, July, and August, but absent that, it's great to go out there. T totally agree. And I I'd probably stretch that to like May, May and like <laughs> September as well. Yeah, I'm going to be hating it next week. I'm sure the second I step outside. So yeah, definitely. Um, so, so is it pretty much distributed between that Cambridge and Phoenix office? Or is it like ops and finances in Arizona? And then you have you know your team and IR and corp dev and some of the other team in, in Cambridge? So we're sort of scattered throughout the East Coast. So Cambridge is our central spot where we all get together. Um, but technically, our head of corp dev and our head of R&D, they sit down in Miami. Uh, the COO, myself, and then also the head of IR, we're here in Massachusetts. Um, you know, our head of plant touching operations, he sits up in New Hampshire and comes into town. It's very easy to get to. So we are spread out a little bit up and down the East Coast, but we can all get to Cambridge very quickly um, you know, at a fairly low cost. So you know, for us, I think we've learned to work remotely. Uh, very well. I think COVID, if nothing, really fine-tuned that for us. So we grew up as a management team in the era of COVID. 
So it's sort of second nature to us to stay connected, even if we're not all coming into the office to see each other every day. So, so that was sort of COVID driven to be more distributed. Yeah, I mean, I joined the firm in July of 2020. So it was the weirdest interview process uh, and onboarding I'd ever had. Just, you know, one day sitting in my home office and, you know, suddenly all of a sudden now I'm employed by Tilt. You know, it was, it was different. Yeah, you know, so, so I want to touch upon that. So you, know, you came from being a VP of IR at Columbia Care. Um, I think you're, you're the only CEO of uh, an MSO I know of that came from more of the IR background. Um, tell, tell us more about that process and sort of the thinking and, and how that's benefited you having that background as a CEO in cannabis. Sure, I have to be careful because I think our head of IR is listening, so I don't need a roadmap to pull the bullseye on my back. But you know, I think IR always has a very unique place in every company, right? You you don't really have a horse in any of the production or business line races, but you do tend to look at the entire organization almost as a CEO would. You're looking for how the pieces fit together, where the company makes money. Uh, you're focusing a lot on the financials, the operational excellence, because that's a story you have to be able to tell to analysts to the investors out there. And you have to be able to tell it in a way that you can answer questions, not just, I'll get back to you on that. So you become embedded in operations. You become embedded in the marketing strategy and customer service strategy and product development. So it's kind of a unique way to sort of almost ride shotgun with the CEO without having all the responsibilities of a CEO or a COO or a CFO. So I think it's actually more of a natural progression than people might think. I mean, some tend to think, oh, IR is just like super marketing or you're an analyst. And you know, there's certainly some who are like that. Don't get me wrong. But I think to do that job well, you're almost, you've got that same purview. And I think it grooms you well. It certainly helped me, you know, in all the companies I work for, um, you know, when I, whether I was in the finance industry working on both debt and equity. So having to look across the whole organization and then taking a company public on top of that. Um, you know, I think that was important. And my time at Columbia Care, being able to observe the operations and see how the pieces fit in this particular industry with all the regulatory hurdles. And then coming over to Tilt, uh, the first thing they had me do is take a deep dive on the strategy. Uh, and it became pretty clear where we could go. And, and had I had a horse in that race, let's say I was all about plant touching or all about this particular product line, I probably would have had an inherent bias without even realizing it. But being where I was, I'm like, look, this is what's happening in the market. This is what's happening with the competition. This is our SWOT analysis for our core capabilities. Let's make the pieces fit. I think it creates a much more even keeled, or I hope it does, uh, approach to the business. Yeah, I was going to guess that, you know, in, in cannabis, especially with the, the low volumes that you have in the stock, that having someone from an IR perspective who actually knows the narrative and, and has repeatedly told that narrative over the years at, you know, probably multiple different companies certainly helps as you want to draw attention to the stock in, in the company. It does, but also I think it gives you a little bit of a Teflon coating in the sense that there are some CEOs who just stare at the stock a lot. You know, I, I've worked with some who said, I need an hourly update on the stock price. And it's like, you can't manage a company that way. There are times like right now, I was on a panel this past weekend and I said, look, I know we're public, but I kind of consider us private right now. There's not a lot of volume out there in all the cannabis section. Uh, none of us are valued where we need to be. We're at a deeper discount than others because we sort of, we created our second act in the middle of the first dislocation in the market back in May of 2019, when the first management team that took the company public you know, the board removed them and brought in an interim team. And then ultimately we ended up with our new strategy circa 2021. But, you know, that all said, you can't get distracted by that. If you try to manage the stock price, it's a problem. The re I've always believed that if you've got a good story and you run a company well on its fundamentals, whatever industry you're in, the investors will get there. And if you don't need to access that market right now, 
Don't get distracted by it. Don't do all sorts of things designed to drive stock trading volume or things like that. Tell the street what's important. Don't make news, just make good decisions and report on those good decisions. And I think that's, that gives me a little bit of a better temperament because like I said, there are some out there who get very distracted by being a public company. You know, whether I'm jaded or not, I think there, I, I just, I've got a much more even keel approach and I'm fortunate to have surrounded myself with a leadership team. There's a lot of IR background in the leadership team. Uh, you know, they have worked at some point in IR. Yeah, yeah, so, I saw that even your, your corp dev person comes yeah, from IR. Corp dev, our COO, uh, you know, we have all had backgrounds at some point have touched IR. So we get the joke. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, it's hard being a, a public canvas company today, um, you know, hard, hard to ignore where stocks trading, um, you know, but let's ignore that. What are some of the challenges that, that you think, you know, you'll have to overcome to sort of hit your 2022 guidance? You know, I think doing what we can with what we can control. You know, I talked about a lot of those second half catalysts that are all mm -hmm. within our purview, launching those SKUs, getting those gardens uh, humming, continuing to improve our production levels. I think that's important. Staying lean is also important, not getting overwrought and adding a lot of bodies. So as we look to add these brand partnerships, that's what's so important. They're bringing in the marketing materials. They're bringing in the horsepower to do the in-store pop-ups and everything. So that complements what we've built out. Uh, I think staying focused uh, you know, on, on where the market's going, certainly what we saw uh, coming out of 2021 with our fledgling strategy. We only had about 17, 18 new SKUs and about another 20 SKUs that we took on from brand partners as we exited 2021. But what we did notice is the wholesale pricing and the demand for that stayed strong. We didn't have to discount that. Whereas our own branded product and the bulk flour that we sold, that did have to get discounted, much as you heard everybody talking about throughout the first quarter. So I think making, continuing to make the pivot, we, we entered last year, I think about 80% of what we did was bulk, uh, bulk flour or bulk distillate, and 20% was packaged goods. We're trying to exit this year, 80% packaged goods, 20% bulk. There'll always be a place for bulk, but we can't lead with that anymore. So continuing to, I think, bring that through the process. And let's face it, you've got agriculture, you've got specialty manufacturing, both of which are fraught with peril. So certainly keeping a close hand on how those facilities are coming along and taking as much preventative steps. And I'm so lucky with the team we've been able to assemble. They're on top of it. Uh, so it, it really is more of an update conversation as opposed to, hey, guys, have you thought about this kind of a conversation? Um, so I think just, just keeping a steady hand on the tiller and not getting distracted off what works and why we did this strategy in the first place. Yeah, because I, I, I see in the deck, you know, for potential catalysts, there's one thing of the four that you can actually control, right? Uh, federal legalization, not something you can really control. Safe right. banking, not something you can control. State market expansion, not something you can control. And M&A is probably the only one that you can kind of, you know, uh, control there of those four catalysts. And you got to be smart on M&A. You know, there's a lot of things coming at us. There are brands that have asked, you know, hey, can you buy us? And it's like, mm, if we're not quite ready to think about that yet, we are, we're going to be very discerning when we look at those things. But, you know, I think taking a look at the M&A and making sure that it fits within our strategy, right? It's, it's not this land grab anymore where let's just get into as many markets as we can and see what happens. Do we have incentive to get into more markets? Sure. Is it get into them at any cost? Absolutely not. You know, we were one of the only MSOs who exited 2019 surviving on cash flow from operations. We're proud of that. Yes, it's limited our growth over that period of time, but I don't think we're ready to start going crazy just yet. Uh, you know, I think at this point it's, it's grow, it's grow responsibly and keep those fundamentals going because at some point this market's going to turn. And should we ever get that safe banking or the holy grail where we can list onto some of the U.S. exchanges, 
uh, I think those fundamentals are going to matter. You know, they will start to, you know, get the light of day that they, they deserve. And, you know, we're not alone. There's a lot of good operators in that space that are being ignored too. You know, this is the only industry I've ever seen where 30% growth, uh, you know, and 30, 40% gross margins are considered to be a laggard. You know, I, I'd take that in just about any other industry short of maybe SaaS, you know, software. Yeah, I think that that's uh, the crazy thing about cannabis. Um, all fundamentals are, are there and some of those like margins and growth profiles are there, but just given the, the lack of uplisting, right, which, which is another potential catalyst, um, that should certainly drive a lot of these names higher. Um, so, so two more questions for you. Um, one, given that you, you sort of mentioned, you know, we just talked about M&A and, and IR and, and your past employer, any thoughts on, on sort of that pending M&A between Cresco Labs and, and Columbia Care? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it actually makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, Cresco is one of the first shops who took a look at brands and said, look, I think there's a path for brands. They did that whole origin house deal. I think what made it challenging, though, is when you own the brands and you're an MSO and you truly are competing with the other MSOs out there, there is always that question. And that was certainly on our minds last January when we launched our particular version of the strategy, which is a partnership. Um, you know, could you sell your brand to the shop next to you who's competing with you on a retail basis at the same time? And, you know, it seems like Cresco needed something to help accelerate that. You know, they have some really good brands, but they were having trouble getting those really spread out into stores that weren't owned by them. Columbia Care, I think, was trying to come up with a brand itself because they had a great medical acumen coming out of the gates. Uh, I think they did a little bit of rebranding. They did that seed and strain line. Um, but really, they didn't have that one single brand that it was taking off yet. So to a certain extent, seeing Cresco with its house of brands now basically acquiring an incredible retail network uh, like in Columbia Care, it makes a ton of sense to me. Yeah, there's, yes, there's some overlap. I get that. But at least now, Cresco is not so beholden on trying to do that wholesale play. Because again, they were still they were too much of an MSO to, to really sell to the other MSOs. Uh, I think that's also been a cautionary tale for us as we look at that and say, all right, if we ever find ourselves acquiring a lot of retail, we better be careful um, because at some point we'll trip. Now, if we use our stores more like a Best Buy, where yes, Rocket Fish is our house brand, it's there when you need it, but we're carrying everybody else's brands, kind of a world of weed, if you will, then maybe that's not such a big deal because we're sharing our shelf space. And in Massachusetts, if you're an MSO, and you purchase a lot from us, we will share our shelf space with you and help you extend beyond your three-store limit. So you know, I think there's still ways to, to continue to be complimentary, but I can certainly see why those two companies got together. And you know, I, fingers crossed they, they closed that deal. You know, those deals always struggle down the last mile, but I think it's, I think it's a great idea. Yeah, and in the sense of consolidation and, and sort of you know, overlapping or non-overlapping footprints, I'm sure you guys have had outreach from potential buyers. Um, what's the, the thinking on the company? Is it just to sort of you know, grow uh, with, with your current basis or would you consider some, you know, some uh, selling if there was like the right opportunity? I'm still looking for that, you know, last Canadian LP that's dying to get a placeholder in the US market and wants to just throw millions of dollars Point in that option. direction. Yeah, yeah, just one of those. I'm still waiting for that call to come in. It hasn't happened yet. But, you know, I think overall, certainly we have had folks approach us. And, you know, I think we take a long, hard look and say, okay, where are you? What's your footprint? What are your operating margins look like? So how much work do we have to really do here? And, you know, I think so far what we've seen in just about every opportunity we've looked at is, you know, I think our operational team could sweat those assets really interestingly. And then the question is, right, where are you valuing yourself? So uh, I think there we like the idea of business combinations. Uh, you know, generally speaking, we tend to be the larger one floating out there. I think that whole non-plant touching side has really driven our revenue base. But, you know, I think we're open to just about anything on that front. Um, you know, I think I'm 
I'm a little bit provincial in that I think I've got a hell of a team. Uh, I know every CEO says that, but I just take a look at the pedigree we have. And I know our team is meant to run a company bigger than the company we have right now. And that, that will come at some point. I'm, I'm convinced of that. Uh, but it'll be the right deal at the right time. You know, I think we're in no rush to just hit the hammer and, and take the first comer. Yeah, and I think you can't have an exit in mind as a strategy. You got to go and continue yeah. to build your company um, with what you have. Exactly. And look, it could just be a combination of smaller people coming together. And, and I think as the, big, as the big sort of combine and shed assets, I think there's opportunities for some of these smalls to come together and start to create that next mid-level uh, that could grow a little bit larger. So, um, you know, without having the heavy infrastructure overhead that a lot of the, our competitors have, we stay asset light. So, you know, we can, we, we are perfectly fine with 40, 50% gross margins. We're not chasing those 60, 70, 80% gross margins that the first movers had, because frankly, you're not supposed to have that in this industry. It's great that you had it, but if you're chasing it, that's tough. Yeah, no, totally makes sense. And, and last question for you, since uh, you're operating in, in PA, um, for this PA Senate seat right now that, that has some interesting characters in it. Um, you obviously you have John Fetterman, who's very pro-cannabis, and then you have Dr. Oz. Um, are you guys paying attention? Are you, are you guys doing anything from a company perspective there? We're always paying attention. You know, I think, uh, you know, we're very careful when you talk about lobbying dollars and things mm -hmm. like that and throwing your support behind one candidate over another. Um, you know, I think they're kind of like the same way we approach our brand partnerships and our MSO relationships. The last thing you want to do is have the wrong person win after you threw all your effort behind one person. I think for us, you know, we've seen that the market there wants to pivot, wants to become adult use. We see that there's some infight, uh, infighting amongst legislation and the regulator. It's somewhat of a natural progression. We certainly in Massachusetts saw what happened when you went from, you know, being medical only and the Department of Health was your regulator to then becoming medical and adult. And suddenly there was a cannabis control commission. Things evolve over time. And I think for us, we keep a finger on the pulse. We do what we can to provide information and guidance and education. Uh, I think our regulatory team has been phenomenal at helping navigate things and really educate uh, as much as trying to get approvals, but educate the regulators as to when we bring a product, here's why we think it makes sense. Here's why you should care, um, you know, whether it's our product or someone else's product just like it. So I think we do what we can to be helpful. Uh, I don't know that we're in the corner rooting for any one person over another. I, I just don't, there's not enough of a good trade organization, I think, yet that mm -hmm. allows us to throw our strength behind any one candidate. Um, I think all candidates have to at least acknowledge that the electorate is speaking very loudly and very clearly. And at some point, I mean, what, in a, in a presidential election, 50, 51% is a landslide, and you've got close to 70% of, of US citizens saying they want legalized cannabis, yet it still seems to get ignored. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah, and, and I assume the, the other answer that you didn't say that I, I would make the assumption on is, look, there, there are other larger MSOs who operate in Pennsylvania who can sort of, you know, push for, for adult use and you guys can just piggyback on top of that, right? Are you suggesting the human shield tactic? <laughs> yeah. I uh, don't know what you're talking about. I I'm have just no saying. idea what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, you know, of course, in, in Florida, like if, if you're truly, if you're the one that's probably, you know, should be pushing and saving the most dollars in, in Florida to push that to adult use. You know, it's always interesting, though, because I think it's hard for some of the MSOs because the more you push for that, the more you lose your first mover advantage. So it's, it's got to be a tough road to hoe for them. Um, you know, you might go from being exclusive or the largest or whatever it is, and suddenly, boom, you have all this open competition. And certainly we've seen it in Massachusetts. 
um, you know, where all these non-MSO shops are popping up all over the place. So it's it's a bit of a fine line they have to walk. Yeah. But, you know, I think a lot of the MSOs are guided by folks who really believe that the rising tide does truly lift all boats. And the first mover advantage is great, but you need to have a normalized marketplace if this is going to really be a long-term successful industry. Right. And I think if you have the infrastructure, let's say maybe True Leaf does in Florida to sort of withstand, you know, more retailers coming online, great, right? It makes sense to kind of push for adult use. And, and I think the other thing I've heard a lot of CEOs of MSOs uh, tell is that, that the competition is really the illicit market, not, not each other. It really is. I mean, look, we take a lot of our cues from the illicit market when we look at product development, strains and things like that. We're trying to see if we can get in front of that, uh, you know, and see if we can add the quality and everything to that, 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 that particular uh, avenue. So uh, it really does come down to it. I mean, it's, it's a crazy, vibrant, organized market. You know, I mean, you can look at it in yeah. New York, you can go into some of those smoke shops in New York, and if they have the little green leaf, you go to the back and they've got legitimate California product yeah. back there. You know, so it's, it's remarkable. Uh, I think there's a place. I think there are certain things that are stacked against us. You know, you think about our 280 regime and the tax regime and all the overhead we have to carry as a publicly traded company. And that's where I think starting to now focus on if it's just price and potency, chances are the black market wins out. But if you're talking quality and consistency, the regulated industry has to be able to stake a claim there and stop trying to beat them on price and potency, beat them where it really matters, the consistency and the quality, uh, the diversity of, of what you're able to offer, uh, things like that. And I think we'll figure a way out. Uh, yeah, the deck stacked against us a little bit right now, mm -hmm. but you know, I think at, at some point, we certainly saw this with the vape crisis back in 2019 when they figured out that it was the illicit vapes that were causing most of the issue. At some point, I think people are being more and more conscious about what goes into their body. And if there is an alternative, you know, they're not buying moonshine anymore, right? They're buying yeah. legitimate, you know, as long as you have Parents. something at every price point. I think yeah. when the MSOs were only pumping out high-end premium, high cost, you price people out of that market. But now that you have the old pals in there and other folks trying to create different price points, you're bringing those people back in. Yep, made a lot of sense. Thanks so much, Gary. This was a great conversation. Really appreciate the time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.